Welcome to another episode of Top Lines and Tales, where we continue this week with our history of native livestock breeds. We'd like to thank our sponsors, who are, as always, Harbro, who are manufacturers and suppliers of quality livestock nutrition. The Southdown sheep is the oldest of the terminal sire breeds in UK, and as the name suggests, originates from the native sheep which have roamed the Southdowns in the south of England for many hundreds of years, developed by foresighted flockmasters into a, a fixed type in the 18th century. And uh, it's probably said that uh, between the Southdown and the Leicester, that uh, they've between them have been responsible for pretty much most of the other breeds in the UK, or certainly in England, in one way or other. And, for example, breeds like the Suffolk, the Hampshire, the Dorset and the Shropshire all own their origins to the Southdown breed. This week we're speaking with agricultural journalist and top Southdown breeder, and indeed current chairman of the society, Jonathan Long. Welcome to the podcast, John. Thank you, Andy. And it's pretty fair, really, to say that most of the sheep with the word down in the title did come from the Southdown, didn't they? They would at some point have had Southdown origins, and obviously that's going back probably more than 200 years for many of them, but yes, they've all originated from a Southdown somewhere along the way. And the Suffolk we've recently mentioned on this podcast was formed by a Southdown ram on a Norfolk U. I think it's that way around. It is that way around, yeah. It's a common mistake. People think it's the other way around, but it was actually the Southdown ram which was used as the improver in that instance. Uh, and there is the, the Hampshire, which was a Wiltshire horn sire on a Southdown U, would I be right? Uh, no, it's actually, again, the Southdown ram on Wiltshire horn and Berkshire not used. It's almost a three-way cross there. Okay. Um, so there probably would have been some Southdown females in the mix. But, the, again, the main the main influence in the, the Southdown, again, being the improver there on the, the native use of that part of the world. Sure, sure. And likewise, I suppose, with the Dorset further across the, uh, there, again, was another Southdown cross. And, and the Oxford as well. I think the Oxford had some hamp in it, didn't it? Uh, not quite sure. It gets yeah. a bit confusing. It does. The Oxford, as I understand it, and it is confusing, was was Hamp and Southdown used cross with the Cotswold Ram. Right, OK. Um, but again, we're going back 200 years and who's to know what, what was actually done and what wasn't and was written down. So it's always mm. a slight mishmash of breeds. And the Dorset, again, as I said, we, it owes its, uh, owes its heritage to them too. And also other breeds such as the Chivet, which has been certainly been enhanced by the use of the Southdown over the years, as, as it possibly the Ryland. And I, I liken the Southdown a little bit to the Shorthorn cattle breed a breed that was widely used as an improver on uh, on the native breeds of, of various areas. That's right, and it's it's been used, in fact, the world over as an improver, and certainly across the, the, well, the UK, England, as you say, definitely. Um, many parts of England have benefited from the Southdown Ram onto their native or local um, females to, to put a bit of shape and a bit of stature into them, and then being fixed into a type and moved into becoming their own breeds in their own right. And, and today, the breed can be found, you said, worldwide, found in the UK, obviously, France, Australia, New Zealand, America, and many other countries around the globe where its ability to produce high-quality llamas led it to be recognised probably as the king among the terminal sires uh, across the world. Certainly, and, uh, you know, it said the, set, the sun never sets on the south down. It's, it's very true. You know, Australia and New Zealand, it's having a resurgence in those two countries. Um, America has gone in slightly different with many of their sheep breeds, slightly different tracks, shall we say. Um, and there have historically also been Southdowns in Russia and South America. Um, and in 1795, Southdown rams were sent to Russia by John Elmond out to the the eminent authorities over there. Um, and there were more recent exports uh, in the 
early part or middle part of the last century to Russia as well. Okay, we'll have a look at some of those exports in a minute. Let's just go back to the origins of the breed. And uh, the Breed Society was officially formed in 1891 with Edwin Ellis as president. But uh, as with quite a few other breeds uh, we've spoken about on this series, the pre the breed predates that considerably. And there's, there's rumour, is there any evidence to say that the breed actually existed on those chalk downs back over a millennium ago when, uh, when William the Conqueror first uh, set foot in England back in 1066? Yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say there would have been sheep on the downs at that point. Whether they are direct relations to what we've got now as a South Down is, of course, up for debate. But I think, yeah, the, the, the modern South Down was fixed as a type from the native sheep on those South Down areas. Well, John Elman back in the 1700s, um, and he really was sort of the forefather of the breed in fixing the type and, and moved on from there. We'll just have a, a quick word about John Elman in a second, but tell me a bit more, tell our listener a bit more about the South Downs themselves. You're from that area, John. Give us a quick uh, geography lesson here as to what exactly, where exactly are they? Let's start there. Well, the, the South Downs are the, a chalk downland which sort of run from Lewis in the east um, across to near enough Portsmouth in the west um, and are a, yeah, there are chalk downland thin soils on top of chalk, um, growing a fairly um, sparse grass um, sward on, on most areas, and in fact a lot of it's now arable. Um, but again, it's a fairly a thin downland soil there across a chalky chalky base, um, which was farmed for as long back as most people can remember, and, and way beyond that. And particularly in in the, the latter century, um, was heavily stocked with sheep. Um, in a, a rotation with arable and you know, in that golden hoof improving the ground type scenario. Would that be sea facing some of that land? Are you right down there on the coast or inland a little bit? Yeah, a lot of it would be on the coast. Um, I mean, my grandfather's old farm down there at shore and by sea, which gives you exactly tells you how close to the sea it was. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, a lot of it would run along the coastal range there. None of it would be more than, I'd say, 20 miles from the coast. And there'd be a, a lot of that would be common land going back the way. And is that still the case? Is there still common land about there, or is it just all privately owned? Uh, no, there'd not to my knowledge, there'd be any common ground down there. It would all be enclosed and farmed under some form of tenure. And you, and you mentioned the master of the breed could be determined as John Elmond of Glind and born in 1753. It's a long time back. And thankfully, the famous agriculturalist Arthur Young, who crops up on this program time after time, wrote a fair account of Elmond's life, most of which revolved around sheep, I have to say. And uh, he firstly praises the merits of the breed and of, on how densely they could be stocked with numbers of over two per acre. And over two per acre would be a fairly dense stock. Would that again be on the downs uh, at two per acre? That would, would be on the Downs, yeah, and on that, you know, back in that time, those thin chalk downs, there wouldn't have been a lot of extra nutrition put into that ground. So any, you know, grass would have grown from whatever was there, basically, in whatever manure the sheep left behind. Um, so yeah, two an acre doesn't sound a lot in modern day terms, but yeah, back then it would have been a fairly decent stocking, I imagine. And there'd be a slightly smaller sheep than we talked about the Leicester last week, and there'd be a slightly smaller sheep than the Leicester, so maybe there would be a little bit uh, more per acre. But uh, they wouldn't be tiny, would they, the, the, the South Downs back then? They'd still be strong beasts, wouldn't they? No, they'd be a very strong sheep in their day. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of confusion among many people about the size of a South End and, and where it rates. And I think if you go back to the, the time of John Elm, when they would have been a decent-sized sheep, um, competing not necessarily with the Leicester on size, but certainly 
not uh, not far behind it, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. And then uh, society sales eventually followed in uh, subsequent years after the society was formed, and the the main one would be in Chichester, which is sort of down on that that, that Downs area, isn't it? And again, with as with a few of these early flocks, I suppose the females weren't required to have a full pedigree, leaving the door open a little bit to. Uh, unsupervised improvement should we say but that's not to say that most Jews weren't pure I think they would be and and just some of the paperwork just wasn't there with them and but the sires had to be pure they didn't they to, to be registered with the society right back then they did yeah I mean I think yeah, a lot of these early flocks would have been three four five six hundred in number and you know registering that number of females every year well lambs or females every year would have been a, a thankless task and so it was sort of taken as trust that the females were purebred and a lot of flocks would have had their own records as to what was what was what, shall we say? Uh, but the other rams would have been pure and, and registered and full pedigree. Okay, I mean there would have been people obviously trying to improve. Everybody's trying to improve all the time, aren't they? But uh, again, uh, and not uncommon with with a society, a second Southdown society was formed, and then a bit of squabbling between who who owned what until eventually they all uh, they all agreed to one aim, and then they joined forces around about the the turn of the century, I think. Yeah, that's right. In 1891, you got the, the Southland Sheep Association forms, and then 1893, the Southland Sheep Club forms, and then 1897, the two sort of come together, recognising they're both after the same thing and they have the same aims, and, and they managed to find a, a format they were both happy with and joined forces under the, the banner of the Southland Sheep Society as we know it today. It didn't, didn't take them as long as maybe the, some of the other breeds, the Hereford no. breeds, for instance. No, it certainly didn't. <laughs> And yeah. and but the breed was popular choice with with cattle grazers as well, and I imagine they would run well alongside side cattle. Going back the way, and I've got records of Hugh Watson, of course, is the founder of the Aberdeen Angus, right up there in in uh, in Angus, and uh, he had a, a flock of prize winning Southdowns. So uh, he was a smart guy, doing his improving as well. So he'd be he'd be having a go at, at improving them in, in one direction or other, I guess. He would. I mean, Hugh Watson's flock, as I understand it, was formed in eighteen fourteen. Uh, which is way back before the society existed, and mm-hmm. he he did develop a, a hell of a strong flock up there. And I did see a catalogue actually for its dispersal at one point a few yeah, years ago, and, yeah. and that was I think he was about a thousand head then. Um, oh. So yeah, and he, I guess his flock would have been formed off the likes of John Elmer's type of sheep and Jonas Webb's sheep from Babraham up in Cambridgeshire there. So he'd have he'd had a good flock, I'm sure. Yeah. It has to be said that a flock of southbounds was fashionable for a while to have, but certainly in England and, and probably abroad as well, and but uh, within wealthy circles, uh, and a bit like the shorthorn cattle and later the Angus cattle, uh, anybody who's anybody had a herd of those things. And, and we had the likes of the Duke of Richmond uh, involved, of course, at the famous Goodwood estate. And uh, I think uh, Goodwood's still got southbounds now. It must be a busy old place with motorsport and horse racing, racing and farm shops and restaurants and everything else, but uh, still advocates of the southdown to the day i think uh, john they are i mean actually the the, the, the current goodwood flock was actually founded in uh 2002 okay um they did disperse back in the 50s or 60s somewhere there and and then they restarted um but again that that original goodwood flock dates back to at least 1778 right, right. um that's the first mention of south Downs being a good but i say the, the modern flock is a, a relatively recent incarnation um following a previous dispersal um but they've they you know they've Shepherd down the Nick Page has done a hell of a job and developed a very good flock and 
very much at the fore of the breed in this modern era. Certainly seem to win their fair share of shows. I see their name branded about it. And, and along with that, I suppose, to cement the theory that I've come up with there, that uh, the sheep were upheld in high societies, we had Captain John Christie's uh, Ringmer flock at, uh, at Glyndebourne Estate, which um, were eventually replaced, of course, with the Grand Opera House, which still stands today and uh, entertaining the very same types of the, the Hoi Polloi. And would that be the same Glyn that we're looking at that Elman had uh, those couple of hundred years would, earlier? Yeah, exactly, exactly the same place. Um, I think Elman was a tenant of the Glyn Estate there, um, so it would have been on very similar ground. And, yeah, you talk about the Hoi Polloi, with it, only if you want to go into the, the real upper echelons, you've got the, the Royal Flocks as well, and there's a flock at Sandringham, exactly. um, founded in 1866 by King Edward VII, okay. and then carried on by his descendants up until certainly the early 1900s, not later. Um, uh-huh. And Sandringham being in Norfolk, is it not? So I suppose that's... A, it is indeed, yeah. He'd probably be at that crossing, those uh, bridging those Suffolks as well, maybe. And before we move on to a few of the more... Uh, recent flocks. Uh, let's just take a look at some of those those exports that we talked about earlier and their overseas influence that, that they had. And starting looking closely at France, um, a country that since provided the UK with many of its modern sheep breeds. And the South Down was exported there back in 1826, 200 years ago, give or take. And the French are loath to admit that they actually even have crossbreds of anything, or most of the breeds. I mean, I live in France, you know, most of the breeds here are kept pure of one sort or another. Uh, but nearly all of the early maturing breeds that, that France have produced back into the UK, such as the Vendine and the Berrichon and the Ile de France, they've all come from uh, from South Down backgrounds, and probably be true of the Charolais breed as well, uh, uh, Jonathan. Yeah, I mean the Charolais is probably the most noted of the South Down descendants in France, um, and it's it's debatable as to what the other half of the Charolais is. I, I personally suspect it's a rouge, maybe, with the South Down on it that's led to the modern Charolais, um, but certainly you know there is history of a South Down being used in France to create the Charolais and, as you say, other breeds as well. And they've then developed themselves into purebreds and much as the same has happened over here with the Hampshire and the Oxers we already talked about. I think our listener probably starting to realise now why this podcast on the South Downs is quite so significant if we go back the way for all. It may be in its true form probably is, is not one of the most big numbers of sheep in the UK. There is a lot of history just about in, in all these breeds worldwide. And the French did keep, I think, in the main, a large register of pure South Downs as well, though I saw somewhere up to 300,000 after the war. So uh, probably more than the UK, I guess, in pure. And some of these found their way back into the UK in the 70s. And then more recently, Jonathan, you ventured over the water to our side and brought a few decent sires back yourself yeah we have um we've been in france buying sheep since oh 2005 now um we've had eight or nine tups and a few females out of there over the, the last 15 16 years from three different flocks and um and in fact we followed the lead set by the late sheila coleman she bought a, a sheep called thomasine in 1991 um which really sort of should we say stirred the pot and moved things on a wee bit um, he was a tremendous sheep. Um, she'd found him at Osceola for a show, um, and had bought him privately and brought him back across the water along with a couple of females herself and really did sort of kickstart things a bit of a revival of the breed in the nineties. Um, and then the late Sir Richard Cooper was out. Uh, he bought a sheep in 2004 out of France. Um, I say we followed on just a year later than that. Um, and really have sort of got stuck into that, that sort of just pool of genetics, although it's not a big one anymore. Um, and like you say, there were big flocks over there in, in the sort of the war time, but now they're, I think there's maybe seven flocks in the whole of France now. Um, I, I remember Richard uh, going over there, Richard, Sir Richard Cooper going over there as a friend of mine, and uh, um, and saying you know, that the depth and the depth of carcass that they had in the sheep there was was just what we were looking for over here. So I mean that tends to be the case with a lot of the other breeds in France. They do they do breed for a lot more muscle, don't they? 
they do, and you know, they they took the breed and focused on particular attributes of it. And you know, as you go around the world, you'll find you know the same breed looking very different wherever you go. And that's what the French did. They took they took the breed, and made it suit their market. And if you look at what's happened with the breeds coming in from the continent, they've obviously had a, a a type of sheep that's more suited to the modern market, and therefore we've gone back out there to bring some of those genetics back in. Of course we have, yeah, in, in just about all our breeds now, certainly. If we move around the world, I mean, for those who are, again, have had little association with the, the South Down breed, New Zealand is probably one of the largest sheep-producing sheep nations per capita than, than anywhere else in the world, and it based most of its early lamb production on the South Down and the, the Romney breed, and still is today. That influence can still be seen today in, in New Zealand. And again, these date back to 1850s. One of the main breeders was a chap called Henry Andrew of the Punchbowl flock who dispersed in the late 1970s. Uh, but the breed, as with France, fell from its popularity of 1,700 flocks in 1960 to just 17 in 1990. But did some of those uh, purebred strains from New Zealand find their way back into UK as well? I know they have done with the Ryland breed. Some, some come yeah, back they have. And, and there's, there's plenty of history, documented history. And the, the South Africa Society actually imported um, three or four rams um, from New Zealand to, to share among the breeders as a way of widening the gene pool in the in the 70s, and then um, Philip and Rose and Whitcomb uh, of the what was this, the Green Cross flock um, brought in pure strains, um, females and males, and basically developed a pure New Zealand flock here in the UK um, and bred a, a different type of sound and in many ways to what was over here a longer, larger, leaner type. Um, and those genetics are still floating about in various places. They actually dispersed the initial flock in. Oh, 1996, that would have been, um, and then refounded in partnership with the Baker family, actually from Australia, what, what became the Southern Cross Flock, um, which then dispersed us again in, oh, 2015, somewhere there. Um, so again, we're, you know, six years down the line, there's still some of those genetics available. And we've actually got semen in the tank off one Southern Cross top that we use here and there just to put a bit of extra different blood in there and again. So certainly in in the Rylands, I know that uh, Richard Weir brought some Australian and New Zealand uh, blood in there to lift the animals up. And they are a different type of sheep, but sometimes you do need that different genetics. But they didn't lift them like the Americans did. And we talk about the Americans on this program quite a lot. And the, the popularity in America has always been strong, of course, particularly at their fat stock shows, such as Chicago Exhibition and winning most of the spoils going back the way there. Um, but like most things in the States, they've kind of crossed and messed about with the pedigrees. And they don't really like... Like pedigrees anyway in, in America they tend to turn everything into hybrids and now we see South Downs are nearly four foot tall with legs like pine trees uh, John and quite quite bizarre isn't it? They're, they're certainly different although you know you have to admire and you know, I follow quite a few South Down flocks out there through the, the wonder of social media these days and what have you and the growth that they've managed to achieve in, in a lot of their sheep is quite outstanding I have to mm-hmm. say and it's something that it intrigues me I'll put it that way <laughs> as to how they've achieved such a such a normal growth rate in a, in a breed like the South End, which isn't a slow-growing breed in the first place, but the size they can get them to in the, in the time span they can is certainly intriguing. Uh-huh. Certainly, they, they, they're they big on doing their tests, and they're also, as I said, they, they're not precious about their pedigrees and not frightened to bring something in that they think is going to be an improver, and I think that's probably you know, the, the, very much a sign of, of how breeding goes on in the USA in general in, in many other yeah, breeds. Well, yeah. And mo- moving close to home, I'm right in saying your Chaley flock would be one of the oldest in the country, John. When did you get started? Oh, well, and where? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, our flock is the Chaley Brook flock. Um, my grandfather's flock was the Chaley flock, which he founded in 1954, um, having come back from war service and, and got a tenancy down there at, at Chaley, uh, just outside Lewis. Um, and then uh, he moved then down to Shoreham by Sea um, a few years after that and expanded the flock and, and worked away. And then um, 
uh, my, my parents started a flock for me, which was the Brook Flock, uh, in 1988. Uh-huh. Um, and then on my grandfather's passing in 91, we merged the two flocks together okay. um, and created the Chaley Brook Flock. Um, so we we can, yeah, we are, to the best of our knowledge, and no one's challenged us yet, the oldest continuous flock uh, or continuous breeding um, in the country. Okay. Um, and we've really worked away from there and try to develop the breed and develop the flock into something that suits the modern market. And we talk about the modern market. I mean, the modern market for you, of course, is, is you did move um, north into Herefordshire and stuck yourself right in the middle of the Ryland country there. And that's, uh, I'm not quite sure how the two of those breeds compare. I mean, I'm a bit of a Ryland fan myself. I'm not sure how those two of those breeds compare, but is is the South Downs suited to the area where you are now there in Herefordshire? It's certainly not failing. I'll put it that way. Andy, no, and we, we, we're lucky. We, we've got a good farm here with some good ground and, and the breed and, and the sheep are absolutely thriving here. Um, mm-hmm. I think you know, being a down breed up to the right and they thrive pretty much anywhere they go. Yeah. Um, if we talk about a few of those other early flocks, uh, uh, there would be the Bryn Glass uh, flock in Wales, the Moulton flock, I think they were, where they Cambridgeshire and, and David Randall's yeah. Camber Castle flock. and. But yeah, no, I mean, the Bringer flock in Wales was the late George Hughes, who was so influential in the NFA Rams over Bill there. And then the Moulton flock is Hugh Clark. Um, and, you know, both those flocks would have been very much up there in their day. Um, Hugh Clark's flock dispersed in, what, 90, 97, 98, somewhere there. Um, and those genetics still spread far and wide. Um, and you can still trace them back fairly, not too many generations back in a lot of flocks today. Another flock that, that probably more recently would be, I think the Wakeham Dawson flock was, was goes back a while, but then uh, merged with Harmer as well, and uh, the Wakeham Dawson Harmer. And where are they based? They certainly seem to be up there. Uh, they've the riding flock, um, and they're based down in, in well, just outside Lewis, um, down on the South Downs there. Um, a very prominent flock in recent years, without a doubt. Um, and again, another flock that's been, fairly staunch in their imports from France in recent years and bringing in new genetics to try and you know, move the breed forward and move their flock forward um, in much the same way we have. Um, but no, they, they, they'd be in amongst the top in recent years. Okay. And and most of these flocks, of course, we're talking are based in the south. You'd be one of the more northern ones, but with yourself moving north. But there there were a few in Scotland. We mentioned uh, Hugh Watson originally, but the fairly fo- flock owned by Cyril Wise, who we know from other breeds as well, in around Dumfriesshire there. Are there quite a few flocks up north now, in, in, in above, there, above the border, should I say? There's a few up in Scotland. It's, it sort of ebbs and flows around four and five, basically, up in Scotland. Not many. Um, but there's a few, and there's another couple of guys started in the last couple of years um, up there. And it's like all these things. You know, there's a place for them, and, and they're a good breed. And, I mean, we sell, actually, we sell quite a lot of rams in Scotland over the last 10 years okay. um, to various commercial guys up there to go and use on new lambs. So there's a place for them, without a doubt. Okay, we'll go on to the merits of, of their modern-day role in, in a second. And let's just talk about the the Rare Breed Survival Trust, and it's something, again, that few of the breeds we've talked about on these, these recent podcasts of history uh, uh, did an incredible job in preserving a lot of these things. Joe Henson, forward-thinking man, uh, and, and the crowd of people around him, and, and this, the South Down would have benefited very much from the from the RBST to, in, in its, its survival. Yes, without a doubt, the RBST, and, and the, the interest that being involved with the RBST brings to breeds is always beneficial, and you know we're, we're very thankful that the, the breeds now moved up off the, the watch list of the RBST and is standing its own ground, uh, but certainly there for a few years in the, again, the late 80s, early 90s, through the 90s. And, you know, the, the involvement with the RBST and the influence that brings to bear on people that see the breed or, or take, take the breed and the sheep has certainly helped us 
get back to where we are now. Incredible of those guys to, to see and to understand that a lot of these breeds were going to be lost if they didn't do something about it. And as you said, through the 80s and the 90s, they did um, uh, dramatic work in, in, in preserving a lot of breeds that they all, everybody owes them a, 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 a term of gratitude. And of course, now as we all come off the list, maybe they're not quite as well supported as, as they were because they, they're victims of their own success, maybe to a point. Yeah, but I think, you know, obviously there's always, I dare say, other breeds that will always need help along the way at some point, um, wherever they are and whatever type they are. And we normally have a chat on this podcast about sort of influential rams within the breed, particularly in the last few decades or so. Are there, are there are a few sires that stand out that have, that have um, put their stamp in the breed and, and still sought after? Yeah, there, there are a few. If you go back through, and uh, I'll make no apologies for most of them actually being the imports that have come in in the last 30 years. And the, and the first one is that Thomas Sheep, the late Sheep of brought in in 91. His progeny would have gone far and wide, and I think there wouldn't have been uh, certainly a leading flock in the country that wouldn't have had a son or a grandson of Thomas at some point or some influence come down from him. Mm-hmm. He just was so revolutionary in, in what he produced and, and the type of sheep that, that came from that flock at that time that everybody wanted a piece of it. Um, Were they needing that at the time? Were they mainly losing a bit of size and and, and them needing to pick pick the size uh, back up? I, 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 we were losing the size, but they weren't as big as they are now in some cases. And, and it, The main thing I think he brought was a, a bit more leanness to the breed, um, which, as you'll appreciate, is is what the modern market is needing. And that ability to get a lamb you know, to sort of 40 kilos live weight without it being too fat, rather than the 32 to 34 kilo bracket that perhaps we would have been in before, mm-hmm. um, was perhaps where it really had the influence on that deeper wider loin um which again really followed through and and yeah that thomas street would have been the one at the time that came and did the job um and some of those new zealand imports would have done a similar thing but perhaps not in quite the same fashion mm-hmm. um they'd have put a bit of size and a bit of length in but perhaps not the loin and, and the depth of muscle that the french sheep brought um and you move on from thomas and then you get to a sheep i brought in in 2005 which was what we uh Nicknamed the frog, um, <laughs> for obvious reasons. <laughs> um, his, his proper number is TC4028. Um, and he was again, a, a, you know, certainly a game changer for us as a flock and, and for the breed and his progeny. Uh, there's an analysis done, well, maybe five years ago now at the genetics with the Sethans. And, uh, yeah, it was quite enlightening and almost scary to see how far his genetics had spread. Um, in, in a relatively short time of, you know, 10 years perhaps in, in a short period of time, he'd gone far and wide. And again, three sons, grandsons, granddaughters. All the way across, and, and great grand progeny as well. Um, Excellent. Uh, and then, you know, some of the New Zealand type sheep, the more recent imports of the Clifton Down sheep in uh, 2008, 2009, and the Tralee sheep in the same period, uh, which were used in a few flocks. Um, and have, have, again, progeny from those have gone far and wide. And, mm. uh, and then you, we talked earlier about the riding flock, and, and they brought in the sheep, um, which they called Benoit. Uh, which came from a flock in the south of France, down the Pyrenees, neck of the woods there. He's produced some tremendous sheep for them, um, and left sons and grandsons again that have been used far and wide. Um, and then probably the, the more recent um, sheep, which would we have noted, would be um, a sheep again I brought in back in 2016, a sheep we, we called Percheron. And uh, you know, people sort of ask why, and you say, well, look at him, he's a cartel. It's as simple as that. He's a, a big, powerful sheep. Um, probably the, the biggest set on top I've ever seen and, and had the fortune to work with. Um, we showed him, oh, when he was a fourth year in 2018, he hit the scales at 130 kilos plus. Wow. Um, which for Southbound was just, just fair going. Yeah. Um, so he's, he's really just, again, moved things along. Really, his sons have gone far and wide and grandsons as well. Good. 
Good. So he's he's the modern day boy. So we are, as we do with all breeds. At the end of the day, it's weight that sells, isn't it? And we are always looking for that that, that slightly bigger, bigger it, sheep. It is bigger, longer loins, bigger muscles, and you know all those extra bits that, that play the part in getting a commercial sheep into the marketplace it needs to be in. Yeah. Yeah, and you talk about the commercial sheep, and of course, yeah, you are looking to breed a commercial animal, but it would be safe to say that a lot of your breeders probably would still be hobby farmers, maybe folks with half a dozen ewes in a paddock, and the youngsters keen to get out there in the show ring, and a few of the folks wanting the wanting the wool, and is that still the case? Are, are there, I know yourselves are probably looking at it at a more commercial exercise, but a lot of people wouldn't, uh, it would be still a hobby to them, would it? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, the, the majority of, our, of the society's membership is made up of, of smallholders or smaller farmers that have got maybe 10 or 15 years and, and work away with them and do their thing and, and show locally and just enjoy having sheep about the place. Um, and the Southdown breed is, is ideal for that and it's a fairly easily handled docile breed and it does suit the youngsters without a doubt. Mm-hmm. What sort of numbers are we flocks and and, uh, and sheep in the UK now? Well, about 320 active members within the society. Um, not all those are flock owning members so you're probably about 250, 260 active flocks. Okay. Um, and numbers of sheep wise, it's always a tough to tell to be folks who don't do a annual mm-hmm. survey of numbers, so you'd, you'd have to take a stab in the dark at that. But it's certainly a decent number, we'll put it that way. Yeah, well, if there's 250 active flocks, then there's going to be, yeah, there's certainly going to be a decent number yeah. number of sheep. And, and, yeah. and you can see that by yeah. the turnouts at the shows. And as you said, the youngsters like to get involved. And again, a bit the same as the Ryland, I think, the sort of similar sheep where they do have big numbers at, at the show because everybody likes to turn out. And talking of the Rylands, do you, do you um do you guys get a coloured gene in the South Downs like they do in the Rylands? I mean, the Rylands almost split into two flocks where they've got a, a coloured Ryland as well as the, as the as the white Ryland. The same. Yeah, it, it is out there. Um, it's something which historically has not been necessarily favoured. Um, much as like in the Rylands, historically they've always been a, a, a whiter breed. Um, there are a few folk nowadays that are keen on them, and you know, good luck them in, in doing so. Um, it's never been anything that's been pushed hard because, you know, generally speaking, they they've not been quite the same stamp of a sheep with a with a white south down feed, but um, yeah, they're they're out there, yeah, without a doubt. Okay, okay, and just something to look at if you get a, a dark one, then you can't register it, I guess, which is yeah, which is. Uh, no, you, you, you can. We we register anything that's got a got a full pedigree gets registered. Okay, uh, it's as simple as that. If it's got registered parents, it's registrable. Uh-huh. The South Down, of course, has always been represented itself as a carcass breed, and and that's you know, starting to show in some of the fat stock shows again, including for yourself. We had a fantastic interbreed medal at the at this year's or last year, should I say, the Welsh Winter Fair for you as a cracking pair of lambs, there, Jonathan. Congratulations to the pair of you. Thank you. Yeah, no, we 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 work away at the fat stock. I've not done any for a few years, but we would have been showing South Down at fat stock shows since. Well, grandfather would have started back in the 50s. Um, certainly I would have carried that on in the 90s and, and the 2000s. And we just took a, a few years away, um, in fact, eight years away from the fat stock show circuit. Um, and came back this year and dare we say, came back with a bit of a bang, which was a very nice surprise. Fitting in well and we got some lambs to do the job with. So we had a go and, yeah, we picked up the native championship at, uh, well, the Kings Winter Fair, the World Winter Fair and, um, the way down in, in Devon at the uh, Agrofest Southwest as well. Wow. Um, and then, yeah, really. Yeah. And remarkably, and as you'll appreciate, um, it was the same pair of lambs all three shows, yeah. which I've never done before. And I never, never thought I'd manage to achieve. I, you know, I wouldn't normally do that, but it just fitted. They, they, we managed to hold them right and cheek and right all the way through. And 
Yeah. It's an incredible achievement. And guys, you know, listen, people who are listening to this podcast will, you know, the do show, Fat Lambs, will understand that, that uh, it, it takes so much out of the animals when you take them to one show that, uh, and, and having to keep them both in pairs as well, that normally one goes the one direction and the, one, the other one the other. And you normally get, if you're doing three shows, you'd have six or eight lambs to pull from. So two lambs to, to, to win, well, quite a, yeah. quite a bit of silverware, I guess, you've got on your sideboard <laughs> from all that as well. So good effort. Yeah, no, we did. I mean, it was, it was remarkable. We never planned it. I, I had got that, that six or eight lambs in the shed to do the job with. And I thought, you know, I, and I actually said when we left Stafford, I said to the guys, I said, you won't see these lambs next week at Bill. I said, they'll be, they'll be hung up by then. And actually, I got them home and came from mind and we thought we'd roll them through and we did. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's just luck of the draw. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Sure. Sure. And, and there is an annual flock competition amongst the breed that's been going, I think, for a long, long time now. I think we'd be back into the 1930s as a national, uh, um, Cup that's that's been going there. Judged last year, I see by the very capable Anthony Glaves, and I didn't know uh, that the, the Glaves had uh, had South Downs. But uh, that, that's a bit a big accolade to win that one, uh, Jonathan. Is it? It is, yeah. And it's actually not been run for the last two years on due to the things actually COVID situation. Um, but we are hopeful of getting it going again this year and getting some good entries. We had a, we, we were planning to run it last year as a society, but just the way that the COVID situation developed last autumn just meant that we weren't quite so keen on sending people far and wide. You mentioned the Glaze family there, and they've had a flock since the early 2000s. Okay. Again, as, as butchers. They're very much here as butchers. They would understand the carcass side of it, and I imagine we'll probably see them out to Anthony. He doesn't mind getting his, his hands down on his knees for the fat stock shows as well, so I'm sure they'll be uh, turning out with us. The the prices obviously uh, keep creeping up. The, the prices within the breed there. What's the record price of, of the breed now? Is there encouraging numbers for people to get in there and try and make some money at this? Yeah, I mean, the, the breed record for a male currently stands at 3,000, uh, which has been achieved twice, okay. and then females were at two and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the last, yeah, the last, well, the, certainly the, the, the two sales in this last 12 months of, of the two breed sizes have really just pushed the job on a wee bit. Um, and the first time, this time at Worcester, which is the premier sale, we had um, certainly more than one sheep at four figures. Mm-hmm. But yeah, prices are creeping up, and I think that's you know, a testament to the, the quality that's in the breed now. and People really trying to push the job forward and, and move on, and you know, new guys coming in that are willing to spend a bit of cash to get started. And it's like everything you only start once, and you say, if you want to start properly, you pay the money and buy the right sheep. Absolute wise words, Jonathan. A lot of people do go into breeds for the wrong reasons, or maybe there isn't a wrong reason, I don't know. But if you're going to go into anything breeding, then yeah, buy the best you can afford when you get started. Not It's not about quantity, it's about quality of a few to get you going. So, uh, a good sheep is never dear, John. Uh, good sheep is never dear, Andy. They just get cheaper as they get better. <laughs> and like myself, um, of course, you're a writer and a busy man. And, and of course, your wife, Chrissy, runs a very successful media company and more recently a clothing range as well, so, which is, looks to be doing well. And uh, you must be a very busy household there <laughs> there in Herefordshire. <laughs> there, there are there are days, particularly through the summer months, where we, we don't often see each other, a bit of that way. <laughs> but uh, no, Chris, Chris is very busy with her photography and her media work and it you know it's a, it's a business which has picked up well grown in the four years it's been going from a standing start to something that really is quite out there now and yeah between her and i we try and keep most wheels on on the wagon all the time if we can <laughs> and your daughter involved in the showing now i guess i imagine she'll be quite yeah, keen young sophie's very keen um she's her own flock of, of serpents and a flock of blue texels and, and it's quite telling that after the first batch of user lambs the best top land in the shed is not one of mine. Oh. <laughs> competition or competition already. Yeah, uh, competition within the family already. Uh-huh. So, uh, and the blue yeah. the blue texel is an interesting thing, a blue texel being a black texel. What's your take on those? Obviously, there's a few people having a dabble, and there's a lot of money involved in those things just now. Uh, are they here to stay? 
I think without a doubt they're here to stay. It'll be interesting to see how the debris develops over the next 10, 15 years. And, and you know yourself, through your involvement in the continental breeds over the past 30 years or so, there's there's some breeds which make a mark and, and stay, and there's some which make a mark and peter away and revive and then peter away again. And I think the blues will will ebb and flow like every breed does. Um, but they're certainly a useful breed, and we find them very good here mm-hmm. um, on our ground and, and use them on the crossing flock. And, yeah, they do a job without a doubt. Okay. Well, Jonathan, I think we've had a good go at uh, covering the, the South Down breed. Thank you. You know, it's just nice to get some recognition for the breed and hopefully, you know, the breed can continue to thrive in the way it has done in the last 30, 40 years and the next generation can take it on and, and move it on again. And Jonathan, yourself have been involved in, in the society for a while? Yeah, I'm currently chairman of council. Um, I'm very keen to keep moving the breed forward and bring in a, a new generation of breeders to, to really help us push forward and, and secure the future of the breed. Well, for all some of our listeners might just have dismissed the Southdown as a rare breed, uh, they now, I hope, can see the significance that the breed has had and the legacy that it's left behind. And, Jonathan, it looks like the breed is going in the right direction. That's the hope. That's the hope. Yeah, no, it's certainly one of those breeds that's, that's left its legacy across the, the globe. And it's, you know, the, those early breeders that, that fix types and, you know, Bakewell and Elman and all those people, they've, they've really shown the way forward. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of breeding and, and fixing a type and sticking to it and getting a, developing a breed and something that's useful. Well, Jonathan, thanks very much for your time and uh, you and I will cross paths in other other places within the media, but uh, it's great to speak to you again and, and uh, we'll see you soon. Brilliant. Thank you, Andy. Cheers then. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of Top Lines and Tales. This episode was kindly sponsored by Harbro, manufacturers and suppliers of quality livestock nutrition and livestock nutritional advice. For more information, go to their website or their Facebook page. And whilst on the subject of Facebook, why not visit our Top Lines and Tales Facebook page where you'll find photographs to back up this and some of our other episodes. We'll see you next time. Cheers.